Amazon's direct workforce rose in 2020 by 500,000 people. That's half a million people to nearly 1.3 million employees, largely in its warehouse network. And I can remember wondering aloud at the time on one of our podcasts, what are going to be the consequences of all that growth? An eight-month New York Times investigation published this week goes a long way toward answering that question, telling the stories of warehouse workers who got caught up in an unforgiving, error-prone system that often struggled to keep pace with Amazon's growth, the unique challenges of the pandemic, and unprecedented demand from its customers. Welcome to Day 2, GeekWire's podcast about everything Amazon. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Joining us on this episode is New York Times reporter Karen Weiss, who reported the story with her colleagues Jody Cantor and Grace Ashford. Karen, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It seems that the systems that you describe in this report were made for an era when Amazon was much smaller, you know, just a couple of years ago, frankly. How would you describe what you found in terms of the practical realities of these systems and the impact of all this growth and frankly, the, the policies that enacted these systems in the first place. What did you find in this story? And I realize that's difficult to synthesize given the, the sheer length. But. <laughs> what, just summarize 9,000 words? <laughs> yeah, we were really trying to look, take a step back and look overall at Amazon's employment model. You know, there's been a lot of reporting about kind of safety issues at Amazon and things like that. And the company has begun to really address those. But we wanted to look back and kind of really look at how how is it as an employer broadly. And um, we found that a lot of the things that it developed when it was smaller could be more kind of closely managed. But as you scale as fast and as much as it has, they really have been understrained. It's moved to a very kind of technologically driven work environment. So you have that in everything from the productivity monitoring software to the HR systems. And that it when you're moving as fast as they are and growing as fast as they are, it's really become harder to implement that with the precision and care that you can have kind of the gut checks on. So one example, Amazon's kind of productivity tracking, there's this is there's this mythology that like you can't go to the bathroom in the warehouse, right? And that's because of this idea of called time off task, which means Amazon tracks every moment you're not actively producing, essentially, you're not like scanning a product. And you can go to the bathroom. But this is sort of like a mythology that is developed from a real fear, though, of that people feeling constantly monitored. So time off task was designed to really identify operational impediments, you know, to say, okay, maybe if we if we if this machine keeps breaking down, and all this time off task, let's fix the machine or move this product here or whatever it may be. But the way it has become translated to employees at this point, at the scale, with all these managers implementing it, is that it's the surveillance technique. And so very, very few people actually get fired for time off tasks, like less than 1%. But it has this like overarching effect on the stress in the work environment because you're now translating it through so many people. And then you also have people who are hired now by machine functionally, they doesn't they don't interview warehouse workers. They they fill out a learning assessment, and so kind of the the kind of engagement that you might get with someone when you actually interview and like 
not only learn about the prospective employee, but the employee learns about the, the work environment, you kind of miss that human connection. I was talking to an early build operations manager at Amazon who ran one of the early warehouses who would stress over interviewing every single employee that they hired for the warehouse. I mean, this is literally the complete opposite of what we have now. So um, it, it creates a model, though, that we found. I think one of the overall takeaways from the story is that it's kind of an, a phrase a former executive used, a numbers game at this point. You have this incredibly high churn. You have 150% turnover a year, roughly. And so it just creates this, when you're moving through that many people, it just creates a lot of chaos and unevenness. I was really struck by the anecdotes of some of the almost accidental or inadvertent firings. There was one employee who was let go and then got a note that she was missing from work. And so she came back and then she's been working there to this day. It was almost like an inadvertent firing and rehiring. It, it seemed like a lot of this was just unintended consequences. But then you went into the executive ranks. And one of the most interesting things about this piece, I think, was that you talked with a couple of highly placed former human resources executives and technology executives by name, not unnamed sources. And they detailed the fact, for example, that Amazon purposefully limited upward mobility among its warehouse workers, which is notable in part because of the racial makeup of the workforce, largely people of color. This, to me, was one of the key takeaways. There was also a story that came out earlier this week from Recode that simultaneously detailed additional problems with diversity, equity, and inclusion in Amazon's workforce. How would you describe the intentionality of what these systems did? Did you largely see things in your reporting that were the direct and purposeful result of decisions made by management, or were they inadvertent things that just kind of happened randomly? They're sort of both in some sense. You know, the um, we have an example of a woman who was fired for a single bad day because she had too much of this time off task, and she was a top performer. But it wasn't an erroneous firing. That was the policy at the time, that you could be fired for a single day. Amazon just announced changes to that specific policy uh, about a week ago. They, We have been asking about that uh, example and this topic for months. It was, a, um, And they, they claim the change has been in the works for months. Um, I, I will say it directly addressed this woman, Diana Santos's situation, but that was a policy decision that someone made. And Diana was a top performer. I mean, she did really well. She, she was praised in her work before this one bad day. So you would think that's a, a, a person you would want to keep. Um, we also found that, uh, Jeff Bezos had this idea, this belief that a disgruntled workforce uh, was a, a threat to Amazon, not necessarily because of unionization. Unionization was an indicator of problems, not the problem. And to him, he wanted this, you know, uh, basically, he thinks that people, according to David Niekirk, a long-serving vice president who's, who built the HR operations for the warehousing, he thinks that Jeff Bezos thinks people are essentially inherently lazy. The phrase that he would say is um, essentially people expend the least amount of energy necessary to do what they want or need. 
And so that is like a core idea, actually, of all of Amazon when you think about it. I mean, the whole reason we click is because it's easier than schlepping to the market, right? Or whatever, like going to four stores to find the dongle for the computer. So Jeff Bezos felt that basically Amazon wanted people who would go above and beyond. And it's, and you see that this is not just in the warehouse, right? You see this in the whole bar raising approach in the corporate environment. But, um, but he felt that people would become disengaged over time and wouldn't go that extra mile. And it would become a quote, a march to mediocrity. And so that's why they kind of accelerated, um, they took, instead of giving people pay raises over longer periods of time, they sort of stop after three years. I'm sure you've heard about career choice, which is a program to get people to essentially leave Amazon. There's something called the offer, which is paying people thousands of dollars to leave. And so it's an interesting decision, right? You could say, I'm going to invest my resources and say, okay, how do we prevent that three-year cliff? How do we make people feel extra engaged when they're here longer? As opposed to saying, okay, they're disengaged. Let's, let's get them out and get a new batch of people in. So in some sense, you have a philosophical push for it. But in another sense, we did just find straight up like, errors and mistakes. We had a guy who was on an approved leave who was fired and wrote these pleading emails into this kind of like HR void of like, please know this, I would really like to keep my job. Um, So that's why we use the word like inadvertent firing. It wasn't the intent, but it was still there, you know, it still happened. Now, Amazon, in its response to you, on a variety of fronts, said that many of the issues were outliers, that they were the exceptions to the rule. I recognize that you're being very factual in this story. Can you give me a sense, without giving a qualitative opinion on Amazon's statement, whether what you saw was outliers? You know, there are some sentiments that were very common, right? So, for example, I'm in in these employee Facebook groups, these associate Facebook groups, And I don't use them to look for individual examples. I look to see what do people talk about a lot? What comes up regularly? We had issues that we even brought to fact checking with Amazon as we went through this process. And in the end, we decided, you know what? That is too one off that we don't hear that complaint that frequently. Um, and so, and and we, we didn't, when we took them out of the story, but there are certain things, particularly, you know, issues around the productivity software, you know, the, the, um, kind of confusion in the HR systems. I mean, these are things that come up all the time. People, uh, document this in these Facebook groups. So yes, the exact specific examples are, are, are singular, but we, we tried to pick themes that we heard kind of consistent problems lists. And there were some things that we in the end were unable to scale. So for example, there was this whole issue, particularly around COVID, where people were going on leaves, taking time off, and would keep getting these um, uh, job abandonment notices. Some portion of those, many of those, we think potentially most of those, people were not actually fired. We heard from HR people about their scramble to save these workers who are getting these notices that they're about to be fired, even though they were on these leaves. We talked to people in the leave system, a back office in Costa Rica, who were dealing with frantic calls from people or emails from people pleading with them, please, please, I'm on a leave. Why am I getting these notices? I don't want to lose my job. And these people in Costa Rica are saying, I don't have access to that part of the system. I can only process your leave. And actually, I can't even touch that. I have to put in a ticket to another team in India to manually put that thing in. So... And we talked to employees who said they got these notices, were panicked, and ultimately were not fired. But we know, for example, of this guy who wrote this pleading message, some people were, and Amazon has has kind of acknowledged that. How many? 
I don't know. We have asked them if they could provide numbers, if they had a sense of scale, and they they didn't. So they didn't they didn't provide us data on that. I know Amazon tracks a, a data point called reinstatements, which is basically people who are fired and then successfully get re- rehired, kind of an appeal process, if you will. We did ask for that number. They did not provide that number. So we did what we could on our end. And, um, but, but some of these things, I, I just don't know. But I would say thematically, the issues were common that we discussed. I mean, I would say one thing, like, for example, this time off task system, there's all these fascinating discussions in the Facebook groups about it because people talk about their ways of managing the system. So people talk about how they'll chime chime message their boss, which is the kind of internal chat. They'll chime their boss whenever their computer systems are down, just as a way of proving that the time off task wasn't their fault. And people talk about keeping notebooks at their station just in case their system goes down so they can prove that it wasn't their fault that they had time off task. So when people are sharing tips about how to navigate something, that means it's a system situation. Coming up, Amazon takes some initial steps to address these issues amid real concerns that it could run out of workers to hire in some markets. You're listening to Day 2, GeekWire's podcast about everything Amazon. The big picture theme I took away was the reduction of the human element, which you've alluded to throughout. The notion that at this scale... It just seems almost impossible for computer systems to exercise the kind of judgment that a human would, that a caring human being managing an operation would exercise. You spoke earlier about the email plea from the employee. It was, I wish to remain employed with Amazon (laughs) in the unanswered email that he sent. And the lead anecdote is about a woman whose husband worked at Amazon and was one of the first to be diagnosed with coronavirus at its New York facility in Staten Island. And she would send messages and just not get anything back. Is this a failing of technology? It's an interesting question. I mean, there's a question of what if it, what if this was just technology that wasn't good enough, basically? You know, for example, there was clearly just actual technical problems with this new leave system. It was actually the, the, the leave system that she was emailing. That was actually an investment Amazon was making to improve what was an even worse situation. But it was super buggy. You would We know from folks who worked on it and with it, that, you know, if you fax something in, it went to a big inbox. It was supposed to be manually triaged, but it wasn't yet, for example. So we know that people, you know, there was like these, all this manual work. So some of that is definitely technology that could be better. There is a, a kind of a bigger question though of, is there stuff that technology just can't do? And, and, you know, we talked with workers who were like, I just couldn't really get a human or I couldn't get a consistent human to help me, who could really follow me through a process and engage with me. And don't forget, this is an hourly workforce that has many, many kind of challenges societally. They, you know, a lot of public transit, you know, people with you know, bad cars, long commutes, challenging childcare situations. And so there's, there's a kind of a higher likelihood, frankly, that they just have life stuff that happens. And someone, you know, if you don't kind of proactively solve for that, um, you, you can have a system that kind of reinforces society's problems in, in many ways. And there is a bigger question too about the kind of, not the HR side, but the operations management. Amazon uses all this technology to essentially manage 
the productivity of its workers. But that means that one manager has 50, 75, 100 people reporting to them. I don't know how, as a manager, you build a real relationship with someone when there's a hundred people. And we talked to managers who said it was functionally impossible. I've talked to managers that take a lot of pride in their efforts to do that. I talked to managers who think, you know, the most important thing to them is that they have low attrition on their personal team, but it is, it is, um, a kind of a, a system that is structured that makes it very hard to do, essentially. Another thing that has come up both from managers and from employees is, as an operations, uh, like a salaried person in operations, the a man, assistant manager, operations manager, there's actually a pretty incredible career trajectory you can do. You can move up the ladder. You can move from the fulfillment world into this kind of rocket, you know, rocket business of the delivery business that Amazon's building right now. But if you're the employee under that manager that is having all this career progression, you just see frontline manager after frontline manager after frontline manager change through you. I've talked to people who said, I've been here for a year and a half and I've had eight different direct managers. I mean, that's a very hard place to feel connected to then. And it is actually an indicator. I know it's an internal indicator of of likely attrition of someone leaving. At the same time, we have seen in recent weeks and recent months steps by Amazon to address these things. You mentioned the change in the time off task protocol, which is going to be looking at a longer time frame. Somebody who has a bad day is not going to be punished with termination because of their time off task metric. Um, you also have Jeff Bezos saying in his final shareholder letter as CEO that he wants Amazon to become Earth's best employer. What's your sense of the ability or the willingness inside Amazon at this point to make real change on these issues. I haven't even mentioned the unionization effort. I mean, there have been, it's really been a a watershed moment this year on many of these issues. What's your sense for the willingness inside Amazon to make real change on these topics? You know, it's interesting. Um, Jeff Bezos's shareholder letter, I think for people externally don't understand why Jeff's saying he wants to make Earth's Earth's best employer is like a big deal because it just sounds like a PR statement. But, you know, people say you look at these shareholder letters and they, they do kind of, they're, they're prescient about what the company is caring about. Um, I will say since then, we've learned a, more about Amazon's safety response in the warehouses, but it's not clear what he means by Earth's best employer. Um, they have announced some pay raises, but that's sort of the tool that they've used in the past to improve employment or the most prominent or public tool they've used is, um, and it's also kind of a, a, a labor market response. Um, it, at the same time, you have Andy Jassy stepping up who, while part of the S team, was in a totally part of different part of Amazon's business. So how he approaches this and thinks about it, I, I have no idea, frankly. I mean, He's been running AWS, which, as you know, is like it's Amazonian, but it's really its own operation in many ways. And Dave Clark, who has been essentially the architect of Amazon's operations, is now the CEO of the consumer business. So does he have a reckoning of some form? I don't know. I think one of the major factors that could really create a change is is the labor market and Amazon's growth needs. So one of the fascinating things I had found reporting this is that people kept describing to me essentially a palpable fear of running out of workers, that this is kind of an existential problem, that not only is the growth demand so big, 
But the turnover means you need this kind of endless stream. And I definitely hear from workers who leave and come back and leave and come back. There's no doubt about that. But you need so many fresh bodies still to feed this turnover machine that we see it now. Amazon's been hiring bonuses, pay increase, not screening for marijuana. I mean, they're making changes to their policies to bring more people in. And you can only tweak on the edges so much without addressing the, the core of the job and, and getting people, frankly, to stay longer. There, there's actually an interesting debate right now about whether or not Amazon's model, you know, like since we've reported this, there's been these kind of various takes, if you will, on the piece. And there's a question of, clearly this, this model has worked for Amazon so far as a company. The question is, will it work going forward? And some people say yes, and some people are saying no. And, um, and the fact that I was hearing so much from people internally expressing concern about it tells me that there is a pressure to change. But what form that takes, I don't know, because it is such a metrics heavy company. The productivity approach, which is, Again, not the, not the singular reason people leave, but it's kind of a dominant part of the work experience that has incredible allure at Amazon, such a, again, a data heavy place. And the demand for that is even greater. The faster you promise shipping, the more precise you give delivery estimates. I mean, you probably see this package will be in your door between three and 5 PM on Tuesday. I mean, to hit that. They need to know exactly how a building is producing at every moment. It needs to be consistent and predictable. And that creates even more productivity pressure. So you have all these countervailing forces of the labor market pushing one way and the business model pushing another way. And the idea of being Earth's best employer being co-equal to Earth's most customer-centric company, that's going to be tested, I think, in some ways. It feels to me like we're going to look back on this in three decades or so and say this was the era before the robots. In other words, this was the era when automation had not yet reached the point where it could deliver on this increased productivity. And, you, and you're right. It's, it's not only speed, it's precision. My last question here for you, there was the, the landmark piece about Amazon's bruising workforce several years ago by the New York Times that drove the conversation about Amazon. I remember it for weeks. And one of your colleagues on this piece, Jody Cantor, wrote that past piece with David Streitfeld at the time, another New York Times colleague of yours. I was struck reading this piece, having paid a lot of attention to that prior piece. It felt like the three of you on this piece went out of your way, took great pains to present all sides. There are sections of the piece where it's clear this is a great place for some of these folks to work. Even one of the managers, the up-and-coming managers that you profiled in the piece, she clearly loved her job and loved what she was doing. And it struck me, did you approach this piece and the reporting of it with lessons from that past piece in mind, even though I know you didn't work on that one, but as an institution. I, I didn't work on that one. I can say I have been talking with Amazon about this story since I think early fall, somewhere in there. There was a multi-month effort to try to get more executives on the record, more people on the record, and to push for interviews. In, in the end, we kind of landed somewhere in the middle we got this tour of the Staten Island warehouse that we focused on from the general manager. 
which was very helpful, A, to get the tour from her and to see the warehouse through her eyes, as well as to have an interview with her. And then we spoke with the new, a pretty new vice president of HR for the warehouses on the record as well. And so those I was so grateful for. I wish we had more, frankly, because, you know, an hour with someone is I'll take it. I will always take it. But it's not the same as having kind of an open-ended, ongoing conversation with someone and and with the most senior leadership of the company. I mean, we put in a request for everyone and anyone. I mean, I, I don't mean that loosely, but but we put in specific requests for Jeff Bezos, Dave Clark, Beth Galetti. I named all these people. I was asking people, who would be good? Who else should I talk to? And there were some really interesting suggestions of people who had kind of risen through the warehouses into leadership roles, not the tippy top, but might bring a unique perspective. And there were, you know, same thing on the HR side. And, um, but we had then a extensive, I would say almost borderline epic, uh, fact checking process with Amazon over many, many weeks to try to make sure we were accurate and precise. And if there was any context from them that we should include. So we worked hard to do that because I think most things in life are not cut and dry. And we knew that. And so we wanted to include as much as we could get. And I'm, I am grateful for that fact checking process because it definitely elicited more information, more context for the story that I think really serves frankly, everyone, and most importantly, that our readers to really understand and, and they can make their own decisions about what they think about things. People are, are, are humans. They live in the world and they, can, they have their own judgment. The piece is The Amazon That Customers Don't See by Jody Cantor, Grace Ashford, and Karen Weiss, who joined us here on this episode. Karen, thank you very much for taking the time. Thanks, Todd. I appreciate these questions. You clearly think a lot about Amazon and its approach and then its impact on all the people who, who deal with it. So I appreciate that. You can find a link to the piece by Karen Weiss and her colleagues at the New York Times in the show notes on this episode. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review GeekWire's Day 2 podcast in your favorite podcast app. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We'll be back soon with a new episode of Day 2.